Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we discuss the 40th anniversary of the replacement Sorry Ma forgot to take out the trash with Rhino A&R's Jason Jones, replacement's biographer Bob Mayer, and Twin Tone Records founder Peter Jesperson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. I'm Rich Mahan. With me, as always, is John Hughes. John, how are you today? I'm good, Rich. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. We've got a great episode today for you. You know, got the upcoming Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash 40th Anniversary Deluxe Edition from The Replacements. And we've got a bunch of replacements experts here to dive deeply into it. It's going to be awesome. Always more of our popular episodes are around the replacement, so that's good. I, I can't wait to hear it. Oh, yeah, you're going to love it. But we have some other great rock and roll to tell people about. I'm excited about this first one. Yeah, a uh, long time coming for this. Pretenders, brand new deluxe edition of the debut album and Pretenders 2, yeah. both curated by Chrissy Hine herself. They are represented in 12 by 12 three CD deluxe sets featuring a high quality book with brand new liner notes by uh, journalist Will Hodgkinson. They also include a myriad of rare and unseen photos of the band. The Pretenders Deluxe Edition contains the original album remastered by Chris Thomas alongside some demos, rarities, and a lot of live performances, including the BBC sessions on The Kid Jensen Show and performances at the Paris Theatre in London and the Paradise Theatre in Boston. Meanwhile, Pretenders 2 Deluxe Edition also features a remastered version of the album by Chris Thomas, more demos and alternate takes, with two live performances, one from Central Park in New York City in 1980 and an electric show from the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in 1981, which I have heard myself, and it is amazing. These are out November 5th with limited edition prints available exclusively from Rhino.com. So if you want those limited edition prints with this, you got to order it from Rhino.com. There you go. Well, you know, a good friend of mine in high school went to that Santa Monica Civic show in 81. Oh. And I was, I don't know, 14 years old. So somehow he got his older brother or sister to take him. And he was wearing the shirt the next day to school. Oh. And I was so jealous. I wish I could have seen the original lineup. What a me. great band. I was only two. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Rod Stewart is back. Sir Rod, his songwriting renaissance continues on The Tears of Hercules, his 
31st studio album. It's got nine new original songs, plus covers of Mark Jordan, Johnny Cash, and more. Rod wrote nine of the album's 12 songs, including the first single, One More Time, which is now available on all digital and streaming services. He's proud of this album. Uh, He says, I've never said this before about any previous effort, but I believe this is by far my best album in many a year. From the man himself. Wow. The Tears of Hercules is going to be on CD, LP, and through digital and streaming services out November 12th. Well, this is exciting. I mean, he's such an iconic performer to have something new from him. What did you do during lockdown, Sir Rod? Oh, I made a new record, didn't I? <laughs> the single's great. Have you heard the single? I have. I like it. It's dancing. Yeah. So check that out. A little taster there. And that's going to do it for me this week. And everybody check us out over at rhino.com. All right. Thanks very much, John. Well, the replacement Sorry Ma forgot to take out the trash is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, and Rhino is releasing a 4-CD, 1-LP deluxe edition to commemorate this groundbreaking album. This collection uncovers more than 60 unreleased studio and home recordings, including the band's very first demo and the earliest professionally captured live concert. The band photos in this included booklet are well worth the price of admission alone. Peter Jesperson, Bob Mayer, and Jason Jones co-produced this release, and they're all here today to discuss the early days of the band and the incredible music included in this new deluxe edition box set. What do you hate, Tommy? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. We have a special episode today. We have three guests visiting us to talk about, well, it's really the 40th anniversary of the replacement Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. There's a new set coming out, a deluxe edition that we're going to talk all about. We are joined today by Jason Jones, A&R from Rhino Records. Hello. Bob Mayer, author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, and also the Grammy winner for his liner notes in the Replacements 2019 box set, Dead Man's Pop. How you doing, Rich? And Peter Jesperson, co-founder of Twin Tone Records and one-time manager of the Replacements. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. I've been diving into the, the booklet, the liner notes, and the music, and... It's just, wow. That's my first impression is this was a mammoth undertaking on all your part. So why don't you tell us about your thoughts just getting this set together? You know, when we started doing these reissues, like a lot of things, uh, this is was very well planned out and also completely made up, <laughs> made up as we went along. Back in 2015, when the band was in the midst of their reunion, I had sort of proposed as kind of an outgrowth of doing the research on the book and assessing the archives you know, the idea of, hey, there's more stuff here in the cat in the vaults and, and, and in your catalog that can be explored. And so we started, you know, in 2017 with Live at Maxwell's a 1986 concert uh, that had not been released. And then the success of that allowed us to get a little bit more ambitious with Dead Man's Pop, 
which was a kind of re-examination of the Don't Tell Soul album. And then last year we did Please to Meet Me as a kind of a slightly different approach than we did with Dead Man's Pop, really focused more on the specific studio sessions and stuff leading up to it. So we'd kind of explored the Warner Brothers portion of the replacements catalog with the first few releases. And, and with the anniversary of uh, Sorry, Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, we thought it would be a good time, an ideal to sort of go all the way back to the beginning uh, and for the first time really look at one of the replacements twin tone albums. And so that was kind of really the, the, the plan, you know, going back a few years, I had initially in my sort of master plan conceived an idea of maybe doing a kind of two disc twin tone rarities retrospective. And a lot of that was focused on the first album and the material leading up to the first album. And in the course of researching the book, you know, we found some very early demos and talked to some sort of pre-replacements, you know, a bit of pre-replacements history. It was an idea that we'd had some sense of, but really it wasn't until you know, Jason and I and and ultimately Peter got involved in terms of really looking at the material that we thought, wow, there's so much here and so much that we can still discover that we could really do a, a super deluxe just focused on the first album and, and the very early period surrounding that first album. Yeah. And boy, did you guys find a lot of material. It's this set is a four CD, one LP set. There's a hundred tracks, 67 of which have never been released before. That's astounding. That's amazing. Well, it's amazing for a couple uh, reasons, and I think Peter can speak to this. If you think about the time in the band, I mean, this is a you know baby band on an indie label in 1981. Most groups, you know, they might spend a day or a week in the studio, you know, and had the budget and time for that back in those days. But obviously, this is a record that was really sort of developed and cultivated and experimented with in a sense. And so because of that and because of you know Peter's involvement in it back in, in 1980 and 81, we were fortunate to have just a, a wealth of material that, I, you know, I, I'm hard pressed to think of any band at the level that the replacements were at as you know starting out that would have had the luxury of doing this much recording and spending this much time on, on a project. So, you know, we're really the beneficiaries of that with this box set. Yeah, well, certainly, Peter, you were instrumental in getting the band into a proper studio and getting first the demo sessions that you did, which we'll get into. But like any other band that has something magical about them, people want to be a part of it. So they had friends bringing over recording gear, recording them in their rehearsal place. People just want to be a part of it and want to help out. So there is a bunch of super early material that was recorded by friends of the band in the basement of the Stinson house on this set, which is amazing to hear. And it actually sounds pretty good. I mean, the quality of the recording is, it's, I've heard a lot worse demo tapes than that. Great, great. I, you know, the, the replacements didn't have, a, um, you know, a lot of people that were excited about them in the early days, but there were a couple of key people that really saw a spark. And one guy uh, in particular by the name of Jeff Jodell, uh, sadly passed away a few years ago now, but he was one that really probably saw Paul's talent before anybody else. You know, the demos that, that we're lucky to have on this release were actually a couple of them were things that I hoped to put on the 2008 CD reissues, but Paul didn't green light them back then. And luckily, uh, I think a, a lot of credit goes to Bob Mayer for that, for, um, you know, putting it in the right light for Westerberg to say yes to Really, yeah, there's a song in particular called Try Me, to me, is really, you know, kind of ground zero for the replacements. And um, I was brokenhearted that we couldn't put it on the, the 2008 reissues. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very happy that we get to put it out in this box. And probably is, it makes this box more exciting. So I'm, I'm glad it's part of this and, 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 and a, a first time uh, 
release on this. Yeah, well, Try Me is the first demo on disc two. That was one of the ones that was recorded in the basement of the Stinson House, correct? Yeah, there's some some confusion as as there is, you know, with a lot of bands earlier prehistory as to exactly where, you know, certain things were done. Um, you know, I, in the liner notes, I kind of take an educated guess. But the thing that's interesting about, you know, this early period, and I think, you know, Peter obviously very famously discovered them through a four song demo that that Paul Westerberg brought to the store. And that was on the 2008 reissue. And again, it's on here because it's the pivotal kind of demo for the replacements. But it's interesting, I think, also uh, us having the ability to put on the sort of or even earlier demos than that, you can hear, and I think it's very rare, again, one of those lucky sort of accidents with this, that you can hear sort of the band evolve over a period of a couple months from, you know, literally they had gotten together maybe in December of 79, did that first demo, including Try Me in February of 80. And then by April, when they recorded their second demo, the one that got into Peter's hands and ultimately sort of, you know, got everything sort of rolling, uh, you can hear you can hear that sort of transformation and you can sort of hear the band's early roots and you can hear them sort of still discovering each other. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, this this real fairly immediate chrysalis that happens with the the, the four song twin tone demo, as, as we kind of know it, or the Orfolk demo where, where the record store Peter was working at the time. So I think, you know, again, it's not just that the tracks themselves are outstanding, like Try Me and the early version of Looking For You, but it's it sort of fills in the gaps in the story and, and you can really hear the, the band evolve in, in a unique way. And, you know, I think I got to say that, that uh, listening back to this stuff, you know, since we've finished the box and, and taking it all in in sequence and everything, the, the Try Me and Looking For You and uh, the third track and the name is escaping me right now, title. He's She's firm, firm. Yeah. right, all right, because that had a couple different titles uh, in a couple different spots. But anyway, um, those songs to me have, I mean, there's something about them maybe trying to sound like someone else or trying to sound like, uh, you know, a band that they hear on the radio or something. Uh, whereas to me, the four songs that they gave me in April or May of 80 sound like the replacements. I mean, it's, it's, they, their identity was fully defined in just those couple of months. Peter, what do you remember about listening to that tape for the first time? It was one of those, a magical moment for sure. I, I've been getting a lot of tapes for a couple of different reasons. I wasn't always sure why I was getting a tape because it was somewhere auditions for Twin Tones, somewhere also uh, bands that were trying to get a gig at the Longhorn, this club where I DJed and had a little bit of sway with the booking. And so, uh, you know, I, I sometimes I just wasn't sure what somebody was giving me the tape for. And that was the case with the one Paul Westerberg gave me. I listened to it and immediately thought, wow, all four of these songs are great. If they've got more like this, we've talked, we got an album here, as is documented in the booklet. And, and as we've talked about several times over the years, you know, when I called Paul after listening to the tape, I was just knocked out. And I said, uh, were you thinking of making a single or an album? And there really was a kind of a pregnant pause. And then he said, you think this shit is worth recording? You know, he, he, he said, I was just, uh, I mean, his intention was to try to get a gig opening for somebody at the Longhorn. So 
you know, that was a pretty interesting way to begin. And, uh, but I, I was, uh, I, yeah, I was just absolutely knocked out. It was, um, I guess I've said it before. I'll say it again. If I've ever had a magic moment, my life was here on that tape. I just, uh, it was electrifying. Well, and I should say, Rich, you know, even within the first year of the replacements kind of history, you know, Peter was, I mean, while there were people that liked them, you know, early on, even before the place, they had friends and that kind of stuff, as you mentioned, helping them along a little bit. Really, they were not getting the most positive reinforcement. But, you know, before this demo, they had played a handful of shows, two or three shows, basically been kicked off stage in, in most cases. Uh, for one reason or another, sometimes it was their volume. Sometimes they were too, you know, weird or wild. In some cases they were drinking, you know, and playing sober houses where they shouldn't have been, but, you know, they didn't have a lot of positive reinforcement. So Westbrook, you know, kind of shock and surprise that somebody wanted to not only help them out or thought the music was good, but actually give them a record deal after listening to it. You know, it, it was quite genuine because, you know, they really hadn't had that. And I think, you know, the history of great bands is also the history of, you know, people having the vision to sort of see their greatness maybe before everyone does. And in in the replacements case, it certainly was Peter, because I'm not sure if they had approached uh, many other people or anyone else in Minneapolis at the time, that they would have gotten the same reaction. So it's kind of that, 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 that kind of kismet of the right person heard it at the right time yeah. that allowed the replacements to really become the replacements because, you know, the way Paul had been in bands or Bob and Tommy's previous, you know, it's very possible that the group could have split up and nothing could have happened before somebody came along to really give them the encouragement and the opportunity that Peter did. So yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty fortuitous in, in any case. Well, absolutely. And it seems like, you know, like Peter, like you said, they were just trying to get a gig at the Longhorn. And all of a sudden they've leapfrogged over that thought of getting a gig and somebody's talking to them about making a record for a young band like that. That's, that's pretty heady. You know, what was it like the first time you actually saw them play live? Well, they, you know, they gave me the tape again in the spring of 80. And um, we, I, I said, I think we really should talk about doing some reporting, but I need to see you live. You know, I'd like to see you live uh, as soon as possible. And so they scrambled. I don't think they had anything on the books and they scrambled to get something. And the first gig was, uh, as Bob mentioned, in a sober house in a, a church just a few blocks from uh, the record store where I worked, or folk, Joe Copas. And so I remember going to the show and, and walking uh, across the street to go up the stairs of the church to figure out where they were playing. And there was a guy sitting sort of towards the top of the stairs, long hair, looking kind of dejected. And as I got up close to him, he said, you must be Pete. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, I'm Chris, I'm the drummer. We just got kicked out. Um, so, uh, I, uh, so anyway, that was when I, I thought I was going to see them first. And then, um, we, uh, and that was actually because it was a sober house and they were caught with, uh, substances and, uh, were tossed out. So, uh, I, I said, well, I can try to help you get a gig at the Longhorn, which was you know, the original intention. And it took a minute to do that. So somewhere between May and July 2nd, we think July 2nd was the first show. Uh, we got them on a, a Wednesday night show, which, uh, uh, the guy who was kind of handling the bookings at the time was a little bit of a square, I have to say, uh, all due respect. Um, 
but he called it Tiger Night. And it was like free cheap drinks from nine to 10. And, you know, they were giving away hot dogs or something. I mean, it was really sort of corny. They would have unknown bands playing uh, on these Wednesday nights, these Tiger Nights. And so that's where the replacements fit in. And the first time they played, I mean, we had, you know, that tape really, I played it for my close circle of friends. And, and then they told other people who told other people. So there was a reasonable crowd. And also the Longhorn was just a place to go, whether you didn't even have to know what band was playing. It was almost always good stuff happening. And and if there wasn't good stuff, there was still people that you wanted to hang around with and have a few drinks with. So it was a a great hangout. And the first place of its kind in Minneapolis really for that whole new wave punk rock movement. So there probably were maybe 20 or 25 people there to see the replacements the first time they played who were genuinely interested, who had heard the tape. And they blew every single person away. I mean, it was wow. it was remarkable. And I, I I think what you saw on that stage at that time, all the ingredients that everybody came to know and love about the replacements in later years, they were all there. Some of them blossomed a little bit more here and there later, but uh, it was um, it was really spectacular in a sloppy sort of way. Yeah, right, sure. But it seems like this band was kind of fully formed organically right out of the gate, like a four-piece puzzle that came together all at once. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think there was, I think why it's maybe not fully reflected on the first uh, is in part because uh, Paul had those songs, those particular songs, before he had really met those, uh, met the guys. Good point. So I think, you know, they were still figuring out their sound and I think the sound is there, but those songs were kind of written, you know, from Paul's perspective prior to meeting them. Whereas by the time you get to the, to the demo that Peter heard that's on this set as well, um, he's writing songs reflective of the band, reflective of their strengths, you know, even kind of uh, with mentioning the band, you know, so they become, Paul's found, you know, he was very much a sponge for whatever his environment was or what was in his sort of uh, field of vision. And, you know, I mean, it was the band. So I think, you know, what you hear is uh, on the first demo is you hear a band that's sort of finding each other and the songs are sort of, you know, interesting in, 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 as, as, you know, Westerberg compositions. But it's really the, the, that period, you know, into the second into the second demo and then into the set of songs that were recorded as studio demos. The first time they were in a proper studio uh, with Peter and Twin Tone Conan or Paul Stark, you really see with those three sort of sets of recordings all occurring within about a four month period, you see again, that evolution. And it's really remarkable to hear, uh, you know, just like I say, I, I, I don't, I don't think most bands in that early stage are as well documented, nor do you sort of experience that kind of uh, the thrill of seeing and hearing that growth. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that this set does a wonderful job of laying out so much information about the band, both musically and historically and visually with the pictures, too. And it, and Paul, kind of from the get-go, was a very prolific writer. He wrote a lot of songs. And there's a quote that I want to read from, from the liner notes that I think kind of sums that up, and it's I found it really interesting. Paul says, that's pretty much the first record, a rewriting of Johnny Thunder's New York Dolls songs, different chords, different words, but that's what I was copying. I realized it's all been done before, so don't worry about it. Once I shed myself of that, the songs just came flying. Like you said, he started playing with the guys, found out what their strengths were, got influenced by probably what they were listening to, some things that he hadn't really dove into yet, and all that became ingredients in the soup. 
Yeah, and, and I think reacting, you know, they were sharing tastes, but also reacting against each other's tastes to some extent. You know, Bob didn't like all of Paul's influences. Paul didn't like all of Bob's. I think a lot of their early sound was the two of them sort of figuring out their guitar interplay, which I think is a much bigger part, particularly when you listen to some of the studio outtakes and the alternate versions, um, how much their sort of interaction as guitarists sort of um, shapes what this, the band is and this record is. Mm-hmm. And I really you know prevalent on, on on the alternates we have on there but i also think as you point out and peter can attest to this i mean before he joined the replacements paul had you know two three songs you know the ones they did in the original demo and within uh you know the first few months of meeting the simpsons you know it goes from two three songs to eight songs to 12 songs so by the end of that first year i mean on here we've got i think 35 or 36 different you know compositions so you know to write 35 almost 40 songs and there's even more you know things that that weren't on the album or weren't even recorded and some right. of them were on live versions. It's like, you know, you go from two songs to 40 songs in the, in the space of really, you know, six, seven, eight months, there's something magical and productive and creative really happening. And that was, you know, the band and Paul and Peter, and I think the environment all coming, coming to together there. It's that special chemical mixture of what make, what makes a band, a transcendent band. Right. It really is. Yeah. Paul's guitar playing, you talked about the interplay between Bob and Paul. I think that that's also really well represented in the live show that's on this set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Peter can speak to this better because he was obviously there, but I think, you know, Paul, uh, in part, Paul always tried, was always by nature sort of self-facing. And I think early on, they tried to downplay their musicianship, but Paul was a lead guitar player and a really great natural rhythm guitar player still is one of the greats. And, you know, you talk to people who sort of talk about that first and foremost, fellow musicians, but I think because Paul was such a good rhythm player and knew instinctively how to play off of people and knew about leads, I think it allowed Bob to sort of stretch and do all the things he did, you know, all the wild and sort of sort of dex- dexterous kind of playing that he was known for uh, because Paul was able to ground it. And then sometimes they're sort of playing off each other. It's really a band of two lead guitar players in a way, but Paul decided to sort of fall into more of this rhythm role. So it's, it is this kind of, you know, again, I think that is something, you know, you hear, on the album, the finished album, but I think you hear more of that evolution and maybe more of the, of the interplay on, on this box set with the alternates and, and, you know, Peter and, and, and on the live performance from seventh street entry. And, and, you know, like I said, Peter, Peter can just kind of speak to what that was like in the room. Well, they were different guitar players. I think Paul generously gave Bob a lot of room, but I also think it's important to you know recognize the fact that Paul was sort of equally instinctive and cerebral as a guitar player. Bob was pretty much, only instinctive. I mean, there was very, very little cerebral about Bob's playing. It was just, I mean, it was spontaneous in almost all cases. Another thing I like to remind people or point out to people is that when you look back from this point in time, you know, Paul Westerberg looks like the star, but I'm telling you, it was never Paul Westerberg's band. It was, it was a four-piece group. And I think there were at least as many people who came to watch Bob Stinson in those early days as they did to watch Paul Westerberg and also, uh, you know, Tommy, because he was, you know, he stuck out because he was so young, but he was a, a spectacular performer. So you really had, you had the front line and, and, and Chris, of course, you know, was the anchor, drove the band and made these crazy faces all the time. So I mean, he, he looked kind of frightening and, you know, he's the nicest guy in the world, but he looked scary while he was playing the drums. And that was probably because he was trying to keep up with those guys because it was so manic. The songs were played faster in those early days, I think. They, you know, a two and a half minute song was probably two minutes when it was live. 
Yeah. I love the story where Paul, you know, before he even met the guys in the band, was walking by the Stinson house and heard the band practicing <laughs> in the basement. And so he would just go over and kind of listen. He's like, there were these guys playing this Yes song at lightning speed. And, you know, <laughs> and what an unlikely influence for this band to me to hear yeah. your yes referenced in there of course sex pistols makes perfect sense and then you you know you hear paul cook's drumming and then you hear what you hear chris plays i love how chris would play the snare just a fast 16th note drum fill on a snare is so great for this kind of music yeah i think that there, there's another thing that I, I think it's maybe minneapolis pride talking here but i think minneapolis had a thing that a lot of other cities didn't have you know, most of the musicians I knew anyway loved all different kinds of music. There were very few people that were like, I only like punk rock and, you know, no more Elvis Beatles and the Rolling Stones in 1977 kind of stuff. You know, it was like we were going, like we heard the Clash song. We love the Clash. We were like, what? What do you mean? What is that? You know, we love the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And we love the Clash. Is there something wrong with that? Yeah. And I think that's what you see with the replacements was they, you know, they all loved all that stuff. You know, Westerberg loved Jackson Brown <laughs> records and as well as the faces and the heartbreakers and the dolls, you know? So Bob loved Badfinger. He'd come to my place all the time. I want to hear Badfinger for God's sakes, or Tommy Stinson loved Squeeze and Captain Beefheart. And, wow. you know, it was, a, you know, they, and they, and they, I don't think they ever really thought about trying to be more myopic or trying to limit themselves. They were just like, Hey, we like all this stuff and it's all going to come out in our music. Right. And I think, you know, from a guitar perspective, one of the things, I mean, you know, yes, and Steve Howe is always kind of cited as Bob's influence. Certainly his biggest influence or one of his most formative ones was Johnny Winter as well. And I think in a, in a funny way, and, and again, I think the, one of the things we tried to do with the box set was kind of point that out because I think the record, the finished record sort of shades it a certain way, you know, in terms of the tracks that were picked. But I think what you hear more on this and certainly live is there is a blues influence. You know, Paul was coming from a, from a pretty heavy blues background. And I think, uh, you know, blues and sort of hot wired blues a la Johnny, Johnny Winter uh, in Bob's case, you know, that kind of boogie blues sound was, was a place where Paul and Bob met, you know, their tastes met, their guitar style met. And it's that kind of stuff with the sort of punkish thrust that I think is where a lot of the replacements early sound is. Yes, there's the pistols. Yes, there's the heartbreakers. And Tommy, you know, who learned from Bob and learned playing to Johnny Winter records, uh, Randy Joe Hobbs, you know, his bassist, I think, you know, was a big influence. I think that that, that sort of bastardized blues, bastardized boogie woogie with a sort of with a punk intent is kind of what made the replacements great early on. You know, they weren't just a straight eighth note punk band. They had a little swing. They understood blues. They understood that it wasn't just rock. It was rock and roll. And I think the role was always there inherent, you know, coming from the sort of twin headed thing of uh, Bob and Paul's guitar playing. And, and so I think that's an interesting thing that I think you hear more of the, the, the blues aspects to the band, the early rock and roll and, you know, R&B influences on this. I mean, you know, for God's sakes, they're covering, in addition to covering like the Heartbreakers, they're also covering Larry Williams' Slow Down, you know, via the Beatles version yeah. probably. But I, I think that's a, a thing that sometimes gets overlooked when you talk about this as the replacements, quote unquote, punk record or the replacements coming out of the uh, American indie scene or indie rock scene. I think, you know, at, at their roots, you know, Paul and Bob were both guys who were born at the, in the last days of the 1950s. They, their, their roots kind of stretch back in a weird way to the 50s as well. I think one guy that doesn't get credit in Paul's influence is his older brother, Phil. When I first met Paul and he was still living with his parents and I'd go over there to, you know, pick him up or, you know, I wasn't in the house all that often. 
but I, I remember meeting Phil and Phil, you know, I, I know there was one time where he actually said, you think my brother's talented, you got to hear my stuff, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I think that, um, you know, so Phil, but that's where Phil came from. He was, there was a scene in Minneapolis that, you know, uh, it was called, uh, that it was, there was an area called the West Bank. And there was a lot of groups that were the blues and boogie and, you know, some electric folk kind of stuff. So that's where his brother came from. I'm not sure if he hung out on the West Bank, but that was sort of his roots was uh, a little earlier musical movement in Minneapolis that he picked up on. And, and so I don't think Phil gets enough credit because I think he seeded those influences into Paul. Yeah. Isn't that the way it is with a lot of us? We'll get our siblings, sure. we'll give us records and it's, they become huge parts of our musical mind. You know, my brother was a folky and, and then a bluegrass guy. I mean, and that was before I started buying records, I was hearing the limelighters and the Chad Mitchell trio and, and then, you know, Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary and, right. and all that. It was, you yeah. know, that had a big impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul, and it should be noted, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, Bob was the oldest, but, you know, Peter had older brothers in Paul's case, you know, he had older brother and older sisters, you know, who were, you know, 10 years older than him, even in some cases. And so he was from an early age, you know, hearing the British invasion stuff and, uh, and R and B stuff in the sixties. And then his brother was giving him folk and blues. And then I think he discovered his own music in terms of like Slade and the glam era stuff, T-Rex, those were all big influences with Paul. And I think Bob, you know, again, them being the ex- basically the exact same age, they would have had those, those same influences too, from the radio, from FM, from Bubblegum, from glam, even if ultimately, you know, Bob stuff was more prog and weird, hard rock and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and Paul's with maybe more folk and blues and singer-songwriter stuff, I think they ultimately had a lot of common ground because of where they grew up, how they grew up, and, and the influences that were sort of in the air for people at their age group. I think some of Bob's stuff was, you know, maybe pushing the atonal limits of, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it was great because it was such a good juxtaposition to the, the melodies and the phrasing that Westerberg was writing. And I find it's amazing to me, like on this record, let's take Careless, for instance, when he sings Plan Tomorrow, Money to Borrow, that is already so Westerbergian in my mind. You know what I mean? That is such mm-hmm. a melody that is so Paul Westerberg. And the way he phrases that, that's one of the things for me, for their music, that really made it special. You know, the music is so energetic and creative, but at the same time, nobody phrases and, and writes a melody like Paul Westerberg. And it's right there from the very beginning. I never pay attention. Watch my snap. Never pay my bills. Way ahead. Time to fucking order names. Time to ever be There's turns of phrases all over this record that are, like you're saying, they're so Westerbergian. Yeah. I don't watch the TV, I watch the clock. That That's like eerie how good that is at <laughs> yeah. such a young age. Uh, absolutely, Crazy. absolutely. And they said the same thing about Tommy, didn't they? First thing they noticed when he was a kid, but they shut right up when he started playing bass. Right. Well, you know, and the other funny thing about this record, and again, hearing it, with fresh ears in 2021 and digging a little deeper into the stuff is you do hear, uh, you know, I think in a weird way, the replacement so much of their lore and their myth and where, where people recognize them came a little bit later, you know, came really with let it be and into, into Tim, that's where the biggest audience sort of tapped into them. And so, you know, the first couple records, uh, you know, sorry, Ma and Stink to, to an extent, you know, they're seen as kind of these embryonic early records. They're more punkish, they're more whatever, but 
as you know, everything, all the elements that we, we came to love and that they became identified for are there. And in fact, in some ways, that stuff is even more concentrated on Sorry Ma. Uh, you know, it's, it's unspoiled or unsullied and it's just, you know, pure there. And I think, again, you, you realize how much the elements, Westberg's writing, Bob's sort of unique stylistic playing, Tommy's, you know, energy and how quickly he's learning and soaking up and, and Chris being the sort of anchor that pulls all these forces together, how much the sort of unique elements, you know, the, the thing that the band that's, you know, more than the sum of their parts really on this record, it's, it's, it's so potent. And maybe in a way it's, you know, it, there's so many kind of, you, know, you could make an argument for a lot of definitive replacement records, but there is something about that first, uh, a first album for a band, but particularly this first album and this for this band where it's like, man, everything is here in a, in a still early version of it, but it's yeah. still the, all there. Yeah. Well, and also it's kind of reflective of the environment in which they were brought up in, you know, the subject matter throughout all these songs is reflective of, you know, suburban life in the late 1970s, early 80s. You know, what are you doing? You're hanging downtown. What do you need? More cigarettes. You know, what's your perspective? I want to kick, I want to kick your door down. You know, oh man, I bought a headache. You know, like it's, yeah. it's all, it's all there, you know, raised in the city, taking a ride. You know, it's like, it's almost like this weird, like punk rock, days of confused kind of like, <laughs> kind of like slice of life. It's just yeah. really, really interesting. You know, and also like, like, tearing down your idols. Johnny's going to die. I hate music. You know, and it's also like, there's a lot of self mythology that's already going on within this album. Yeah. You know, I look at it in the way that Ian Hunter wrote about what life was like in Matahoople. Mick Jones did the exact same thing with the clash. You know, you've got the classic lines and shut up. Tommy's too young. Bobby's Bobby's too drunk. I can only sing one note. Chris needs a watch to keep time. It's like he's just he's <laughs> reflecting what he's seeing all around him, both his bandmates and just life for him at that time. The actual recording of the album, you went back to Blackberry Way Studios, which is where you did the demo, and but things really weren't going well, and you tried to do some recording at some venues to kind of capture that live thing. Ended up going back to Blackberry Way to finish the record. What finally got them comfortable there? Well, hard to say. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that's, we had to experiment with recording elsewhere uh, because we didn't feel like we were capturing their, you know, what we saw on stage in a live situation. We didn't feel like we were capturing that at Blackberry. So I, I thought, you know, we all talked about it. I don't even know whose idea it was originally, but maybe we should try putting them on a stage in one of those clubs that they play where they're comfortable. And we couldn't really do it. And we didn't want to make a live album. So we did it during the day at the Longhorn, one session there with a mobile unit that my partner, Paul Stark had. And we did the same thing at First Avenue. It was still at that time called Sam's, but uh, we knew the, you know, the people who ran the clubs, they were totally open to letting us come in there and, and mess around for an afternoon. And, uh, and it was, I mean, to me, it's sort of remarkable that we tried both of those things and we got really nothing usable out of either of them. Uh, I think there's one song out of a hundred tracks on this box that's from 
the first or the SAMS demo session or the SAMS reporting session with the mobile truck. But the rest of them were just, we were listening to them going, why is this not working? Right. So we didn't really have any other choices. It wasn't like we had money to go to a different studio than Blackberry Way. Part of the other thing, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that the recording was spread out over such a long period of time. And there's a number of reasons for that. Part of it is that we didn't, Twinton didn't have a lot of money. The replacements were untried at that point. So they couldn't jump ahead in line without creating a, a, a ruckus. And so we had to bide our time. But one of the other reasons that it worked so well was because Paul Stark originally owned the house there at 606 13th Avenue Southeast in Dinkytown, where Blackberry Way was. And, and basically it was slowly taken over by some old high school buddies of mine who had their own studio out in the suburbs originally in Minnetonka. And they called it Blackberry Way. They ended up moving their gear into Paul Stark's house. And they had a band themselves called Fingerprints. And they were one of the first bands that we wanted to record at Twin Tone. So there was that amalgamation of Paul Stark stuff and the Fingerprints guys stuff. And um, there was a barter system where we could record and then Paul Stark would knock some money off their rent and <laughs> that sort of stuff. So, so that was another reason that it was convenient. But, but I think that once the replacements realized that recording at the Longhorn or Sam's wasn't working, they just reconciled themselves to the fact that we were going to have to do it a Blackberry way. But it was really kind of uncanny how quickly they got comfortable, I got to say, because it was it wasn't like we went back and we had you know, a couple of weeks uh, of failure. I think we went back there and pretty much right away, it was boom, 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 started okay. happening. Yeah. Well, if I can also say, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about this, and again, part of the sort of succession of uh, recordings they did leading into the, to the album recording is Peter gets the demo, but has to kind of convince his partner, Paul Stark. So he stages essentially a live audition that was recorded at Blackberry Way in July, end of July of 1980. And if you listen to that, I mean, that's technically the first time the band was in the studio and in Blackberry Way, although it was a live, I guess, two-track recording. But in that session, the band really is kind of playing for their lives in a sense, you know, who knows if if Paul Stark hadn't been sort of convinced if, you know, things might have gone differently. But that recording was so good that two of the tracks from that session actually ended up on the on the finished LP. When they got back to maybe making the album in earnest as a real full, you know, whatever it was, eight track recording and a little bit more formal, I think it was more psychological thing that why it was clicking. And I think Tommy talks about that a little bit in the liner notes, you know. Yeah, when they did the first time at Blackberry, it was so casual. They didn't even know what was going on, but they knew it was important to get it. And, you know, they're just I think that's some of the best material on, on the box that it's just incredible the energy the first track we released off it was i hate music was off that you know twin tone studio demo and i think it just took a little while for them to get you know again really used to the idea of the studio and maybe see that the live stuff wasn't quite coming out the way they wanted and they just hunkered down they got to business and again the band was still so young that from july or you know even september to January, you know, that's basically each month or a couple months that passes, that's like, you know, the band has been together exponentially longer, you right. know, so sure. it wasn't just, I think, a question of uh, the studio or being psyched out about the studio, which maybe they were a little bit, 
Uh, it was also the fact that, hey, you know, in that interim, they're playing more shows, they're rehearsing four or five times a week, and the thing is just getting better and better. So when they go back in January to record, again, it's a, it's it's the band at yet another level. Maybe that's just, it was ordained in the stars. That's <laughs> right. the way it needed to be in order for them to get to that just next level to be right there. And of course, over the seven months that it took to record the album, Paul kept bringing in new songs. Yeah. And one of those was Johnny's Gonna Die. And that has a particularly interesting origin story, if one of you would please tell that, because I think I found that so interesting. Peter, go ahead. Well, Johnny Thunder's Gang War came to First Avenue, Sam's, I guess. Uh, uh, and there was two shows, one in the 7th Street entry and one in the main room. And he was a mess. I don't remember the entry show as clearly as I remember the main room show. And I have a sense that it was maybe better but he was messed up pretty well when they played the bigger room the second night. And I think that's the one that Chris and Paul saw. I think I went both nights, but, but it was um, Wayne Kramer and Johnny Thunder. So, you know, you're going, Holy cow, these guys, you know, these legends are in our, in our home club. It was a big deal. And, and uh, Wayne Kramer was great. And, and uh, Johnny was struggling. I don't know if I'd say it was disappointing because you were still looking at Johnny Thunders. And so there was still, you know, it was still a very big deal. But, you know, it was somehow less satisfying than we hoped it would be. And then the next morning, I checked in with Paul and uh, just was like one of those, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I just wrote a, I got a new song. And I said, what's, what's it called? And he said, Johnny's going to die. It was like, yikes. So, um, and but, uh, you know, when he told me, of course, I hadn't heard it. I didn't realize that it was, you know, a pretty pivotal song and that it was the first ballad that he introduced to the band. Johnny always needs more than he takes. Forgets a couple chords. Gets a couple breaks And everybody tells me That Johnny is hot Johnny needs something What he ain't got And Johnny's gonna die Johnny's gonna die Johnny's gonna die One of the other things I love about it We've got three different studio versions On the album, the original And then there's a complete alternate version, studio version, and, and an also an alternate mix. You know, Bob always takes the first solo and Johnny's going to die. Paul takes the second. And Bob's solos are essentially the same on all three. And Paul's are all three completely different <laughs> and uh, equally great in my mind. I mean, we had a hard time choosing which one just because he nailed it each time. And they're all, I, I love the fact that we've got that's documented now. People can hear all three of Paul's yeah. different solos. These demos show so much about the band and, like you said, their progression. But I really found it interesting listening to Paul's acoustic demos, which to me sounded so different from the band stuff. And like you said, it took a while for that to kind of make its way into the band. As Paul started to feel more comfortable to bring these songs in, was the band accepting of them or was it? that's a little bit different. Maybe that's not us. Was that a source of tension between he and Bob? He didn't mention it to him. That's, that was one of the odd predicaments I found myself in was that Paul was writing these solo acoustic piano or guitar, acoustic guitar songs. And he was afraid to show that side of himself to the band. He and I spent a lot of time together. He was constantly in my apartment. It really became kind of the replacement's office. And so he was always there listening to records and we hung out quite a lot. And I think at some point he just felt comfortable confiding in me. And at some point he said, well, I've got these 
couple of these acoustic songs or whatever I'd like to play for you. And, and then he would leave the tape with me. And then he kept giving me more and more and more. I mean, I thought they were great from the beginning, from the first time I heard that four song demo. But when Paul started giving me those songs, it was absolutely a revelation. I, at that point, I was really, I thought, this is beyond what I initially thought it was. This talent is much larger. There was actually a point where this song had probably never let anybody release called uh, You Hold Me in Suspension. And I remember specifically him calling me about that one late one night and saying, I just wrote this song. I sing the whole thing in falsetto. And if I don't get it out of the house fast, I'm going to erase it. Can I come over? And I think usually he would just come over by a little buzzer system and he had his own secret buzz. So sometimes when I didn't want to answer the door, I would not answer it. But when it was Paul, I always answered it. So a lot of times he would just come over unannounced. But in this case, he actually, it was, I think it was because it was late. He, you know, he didn't drive. He was 20 blocks away. And I believe he ran 20 blocks. And I just cracked the door when I heard his buzz go off so that he could come in. And when I heard him at the door, I just saw his hand come through the door. He handed me the cassette and then he ran back. I mean, literally. And then I played the song and it's, it's got to me, you're talking to Jason was talking about those couplets, those lines that are so Westerbergian. There's a line in there. I think it's one of the best things he ever wrote where he's saying, all paint chips and all love fades. Wow. 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 And, and you know, Rich, we have a couple. I mean, there's four songs on there, too, that have been released in terms of Paul's home acoustic demos. You know, one of them is uh, called You're Pretty When You're Rude. And the other is a, a demo. He's actually writing the song as he goes along of If Only You Were Lonely, which was the B-side of their first single. And you hear in that, as you note, it is a finger picky Bob Dylan thing. I think, you know, Leo Kotke even, you know, that kind of stuff was, uh, again, coming from Paul's folk side, the influence of his brother and his guitar chops. You hear that stuff, but you're also hearing you hear him coming up with the lines and laughing at himself as he comes up with a, a funny or a weird line and then starts over it. I ain't real good, but I practice with myself. Don't know what to say, so I said what I felt. I said if only was lonely. If only were lonely too. What's particularly unique about that stuff and the way we sort of placed it on this is it gives you a window into his process very early on and a, a kind of secret process because this wasn't a part that he was sharing with the band and, you know, maybe sharing with Peter to an extent, but um, it's just a guy sort of discovering his own powers and prowess and finding his own sound and songs and actually, you know, writing songs on the fly, you know, which turned out to be something as iconic as if only you were lonely. So I think, you know, what, what my sort of goal has been to whatever extent with all this is to, is to, you know, so much of the replacements thing is about the show and the reputation and the myth. And it's like, you know, these guys were really creative and there was a, a process and a craft and an art to, to that creativity. And I think with the studio alternates, you really hear this band that could go any which way and do all these different things. And by the same token, you're hearing that same stuff with Paul with the home demos, you're hearing like this incredible creativity and you're getting this really sort of rare peak into that creativity. It's such a sort of formative moment for him. I got to say about you're pretty when you're rude. That's one thing I think is really important to point out is that he does some finger picking on that, that I never heard him do ever on another track before or since. And if you're that good at something like that, why wouldn't that have turned up somewhere along the line? That's astonishing to me. 
So I'm really especially proud that we were able to present that one. For all that we've been through, all that we've been through together now or never through together, it's true. You're pretty when you're rude. It's true, you're pretty when you're rude. And another thing, Rich, just to fully answer your question about him introducing these quieter ballads, uh, if you will, to the band, that did start to happen on, on Stink. You know, we had the song Go, which was, you know, still a bit of a rocker, but that was more of a, a, a tender, if, if uh, not for a better word. And then on uh, Hoop Nanny, of course, we had Within Your Reach. But the song maybe that probably frightened me the most when he was giving me the solo things that, that opened my eyes the most was called You're Getting Married. Like a flower in the dark Never gonna That was a song that the band did start to do live a little bit. I remember being in Trenton, New Jersey uh, on tour one time. And actually, it was my birthday. We used to play this club called City Gardens. And, and I remember Paul saying something to me. I don't know if it was before the set or shouted out during the set. You know, what do you want to hear? You know, it's your birthday or whatever. And I said, you're getting married. And they actually did it. And there's a, this live version from City Gardens is really something. And Bob kind of, Bob Stinson kind of goes along with it in that situation. And it's beautiful. And Paul makes up completely different lyrics in some cases from what the recording was. But uh, we did try to record You're Getting Married with the band for Hoop Nanny later. That's where I remember very specifically Bob saying, that ain't the replacements, Paul. Save it for your solo record. Mm -hmm. And you could hear Bob actually um, spoiling the track by playing shitty. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, didn't, isn't, is the City Garden show the one where they were playing in front of like a total like hardcore punk crowd and they were like really not digging it and instead they come out and they do You're Getting Married and they had every, they had that crowd in the palm of their hand. But like, isn't there some famous story about that, Peter? There, I, I believe that was, there was a couple of times. There was one at, um, oh boy, I want to say, I, I can picture the club in Hollywood, uh, it was a basement place uh, at Hollywood and Vine, sort of. Uh, might have been called the China Club, uh, okay. where, where he they were doing. A, they pulled a because it was a real hardcore punk audience. They were doing a goddamn job, but they do it. They called it job country, screwing with their own songs, slowing them down. But this one Trenton show, I do believe this was one where I think you're right, where there were some real hardcore punks in the front that were really you know, putting them on the spot. And Westerberg just handled it so well. And he actually sings to them in the lyrics to You're Getting Married. And there was a line where he actually says something about, oh, he says, he says, he actually says it out loud. After they finished the song and these people actually, these punks actually applauded, Westerberg says, at least you ain't enemies. That's nice to know. It's like, wow, you know, goosebumps, you know? Yeah, yeah. I find it interesting that he always gave you a cassette of the songs instead of playing them for you himself. Was there a certain element of 
being unsure about these new songs that he had written, but it was safer to give you a tape and run away and then get your feedback later? Good question. I think maybe it would feel too on the spot to try to play them for me. There was one instance when after he'd given me a couple of demos and we were working on Sorry Ma, and this would have been early 81, I had said, you know, to me, you know, we're, we're making an album, right, you guys? But from the album, we have to pick a track that's going to be the single from the album. And we got to get a non-LPB side and we got to do a nice picture sleeve. And that should be uh, get released right before the album comes out. It's just a great way to launch a band. Yeah, that was my little theory, whatever. And they all thought that was a good idea. I think they were a little surprised when I said I'm in trouble should be the top side, in my opinion. And they, uh, But uh, that was a new song at the time. Maybe they were thinking that one of the ones they uh, had been doing longer might be the one and whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but they went along with it. And I said, you know, uh, in a private moment with Paul, I, I said, boy, it would really be cool if we did one of those solo songs on the flip side. He's like, no way, man. And he himself said, that ain't the replacements. Never going to happen, basically, was was the attitude I got. But I kept trying to chip away at it. Or not chip away, but I, I kept saying, you know, I, I think it would be a really cool idea because I didn't know of any other, you know, punk rock or hardcore bands that were doing those two things. It right. seemed to me like this was something that would really show people, the uh, you know, the breadth of, of his talent. And But I really didn't think I was going to win that one. Usually we would make the records with the whole band. And then after the basic tracks were finished, you know, the other Chris and Tommy and Bob would go their own separate ways and Westerberg and Felstead and I would go in to do the finishing. And so I was constantly going to pick Westerberg up to go to Black Reway to mix. And one time I was supposed to pick him up at say like 6 p.m. And I was at the record store and he called like a couple hours early and, and, and said, uh, hey, uh, I got an idea for that B-side. Can you come a little early to pick me up? And I said, sure. So I went to his folks' house. We went upstairs to his brother Phil's room, and Phil actually had a padlock on his door to keep Paul out so he couldn't get out his guitars and stuff, his records. And so, But Paul had, of course, figured out how to get in, found the key or something. And so we went up there, and he unlocked Phil's room, and we went in there, and he actually played me the first verse of If Only You Were Lonely or played me a section of If Only You Were Lonely on a cassette. And then he played me another part sitting on Phil's bed with Phil's acoustic guitar. And so that was the only time that happened. But that was a thrill, of course. And I, I mean, instantly, I mean, I heard the fragments of If Only You Were Lonely. I was like, fuck yeah, you know, uh, let's do it. So we grabbed his acoustic guitar, drove over to Black Way. I remember specifically as we were driving, Paul sitting and riding shotgun, scribbling on a notepad. So I was going, holy cow, I think he's maybe finishing the song. This is really amazing, you know, to be present for the uh, point of creation. And um, so when we pulled up to Blackberry, Steve Felstead, the engineer, came to open the door, saw Paul with a guitar case. And he was like, right away, he was like, whoa, I thought we were mixing. What's the guitar for? And I said, we just got an acoustic thing to record. We can do it quick. Just two mics, a voice, and a guitar. Be done in a second, Steve. Don't worry about it. We won't make this complicated. And so Steve, of course, was he was so easygoing. He just rolled with it, set up the mics. We recorded the song once, wound it back. Paul put the little fills in on the guitar, and it was done in 10 minutes. Well, I ain't very good, but I get practice by myself. Forgot my one line, so I just said what I felt. Only you was lonely I go home with you 
you know, I don't remember it taking uh, much con- convincing uh, to the rest of the band to put it out. I mean, we would never have done it if they had just said, Bob said, screw it. I won't stand for it or whatever. We would never have gone against it. But they they kind of saw the, the beauty of it. Yeah. And, you know, Rich, it's, it's funny. The thing about the box is like, you know, Peter's telling the story and it's and about Paul playing him that demo and, you know, or a section of the demo for uh, If Only You're Lonely. And that's, of course, on the box set. Uh, or, you know, Peter talking about picking uh, I'm in trouble as, as the, uh, as the first single. And, you know, on the live uh, version on the live album, that's on, and it's part of the box, you hear them play I'm in trouble and they say, Oh, that's a new song. You yeah. know, we just wrote that one last week. So there's a, there's such a, an immediacy and such a kind of fertility in terms of their creativity. And, and as Jason notes, you know, uh, the songs are about everything that was happening in their daily life. So, you know, the way we kind of view this box is it's like the first 18 months uh, of, of the replacements, you know, from the time Paul really sort of, connected with the band to the completion of the record. And, and in the middle of it, you've got the live stuff and you've got the demos and you've got the alternate. So it's like, it, 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 I just think we're very lucky, you know, largely owing to Peter and, and to twin tone having recorded all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, Paul having ha- had those demos too, and done those demos too. And then some of the early stuff, it's like, you get this complete picture of this, this band that would go on to become legendary at a point where, you know, it's just, I, I just think we're really lucky that, to have all this stuff that tells this story in such an effective way where, you know, most bands at that, at that stage, you know, you, they just, they didn't document it to the degree that this band did. Yeah. Also yeah. to me, it's the most replacements thing to do is to turn an 18 track <laughs> punk rock record into a 100 track box set. It's it totally, it's completely subversive. And I love that. And I love that that spirit permeates throughout the entire box. Yes, we're being reverential. Yes, we are, you know, trying to define and cement, you know, them as a creative force, but also like, we're also like paintbrushing you a little bit, you know? So it's, it's just, it's, it's all within the spirit of the replacements. I mean, I think you understand, you know, Peter, even now talking about it 40 years later, just the excitement of discovery and innovation and creativity that was happening that was just part of the band at that time. And again, like I say, they were rehearsing four or five times a week, playing, you know, several times, recording in between. I mean, the band became for all of them, once they sunk their teeth into it and and there was a little bit of hope that, wow, maybe this could be something, you know, uh, I think they really sort of just, they poured themselves into it probably in a way that they never did again, you know, to, to some extent, I think, you know, when you're, when you're young baby band starting out and somebody gives you some attention and some prospects, I think you really, you, you know, there's an excitement there and something, a sense of discovery that's constant. And I think in, in total, you listening to this box and the demos and the re- studio stuff and the live stuff, you get a sense of what it was like to be in this sort of sphere with the replacements as all these incredible things are happening and all this creativity is coming out in that first, like I say, 18 months. So it's it's uh, it, it's it's as much as it's as a box that I, we feel like it's kind of an experience too. you know, getting, getting, a, getting a chance to sort of feel that excitement that they must have felt and certainly Peter felt at that time. Yeah, I think it's important, too, to point out that a lot of the extra tracks were uh, you know, we would we would do these different versions of the songs, different vocals, different mixes. We would always run cassettes of them in the studio, and then end up back at the Modesto where I lived to listen to them after the sessions and see where we got it right or where we got it wrong. You know, with those guys, I saved every scrap that I could, and that's what these are. It's like I think they use the term in movies, uh, dailies. You know, what you look at. Yeah you know, at the end of the day, see what, what you did. And, and so that's what a lot of these extra unreleased tracks were. 
and uh, I'm glad that we kept him. And one of those, just to touch on the the live show, this is the first professionally recorded live show of The Replacements. It's included in this set. And the original master tape for that was lost. And like you said, these reference tapes that you have, this show comes from a really clean first edition cassette copy, doesn't it? It does. Uh, And I, I, I don't know why I didn't have it in my collection, but part of the thing here was that one of my best buddies, Terry Katzman, sadly passed away a couple of years ago. And this box set is dedicated to Terry, by the way. And Paul even says this one goes out to Terry Katzman on the live recording right before hanging downtown. Uh, Terry was, uh, Paul and Terry really were, were great friends. And Terry was one of the few people besides me that got to go to their band rehearsals. He and his girlfriend at the time, you know, often went over there just because they let him in. They, they loved him. Terry was the, really their first sound man. And so he almost always would take the shows and sometimes it'd be my cassette, sometimes it'd be his cassette, and then afterwards I'd dub his or he'd dub mine. So somehow this was one that maybe I said, oh, I'll, I'll dub that next week, and I just never did, or possibly I had it and I lost it. But uh, after he passed away, his wife gave me all of his uh, replacements cassettes, which just really meant a lot to me. Of course, Terry had them all cataloged and, and labeled and, and uh, tracks written down on them, and most of the time the dates and everything. When Bob and Jason and I first talked about this, we thought if we can find a show that's great all the way through from top to bottom, a complete show, that would really be a special thing to put into this box set. Yeah. We had two or three options that we thought were pretty good. And then this one, one day I found it in this box of Terry's. What we think, you know, the, the genesis was, the idea was Paul Stark was going to record with his mobile unit, but not as a multi-track, just do a two-track stereo recording of this. So there was a version of that, and Steve Felstead was brought in to mix the show live, and Terry was recording this. And so that's the first generation copy of that show, which, uh, you know, a part of it might have been aired on KFAI, but we don't think the whole thing ever was. Really hasn't really circulated in bootlegger circles either. And it's just one of those things, again, where, it's not only the performance is fantastic, but the set list is fantastic. The cover choices are fantastic. The dialogue in between songs. So it's really a slice of life of, of replacements life in that first year, 18 months. I, I, it's, a, it's an amazing historical document and a kind of environmental portrait of the band, in addition to being just a, a great you know, live album. I love that they gave Tommy a mic and he didn't sing. It was just for him to talk in between songs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's so cool. Trouble Boys on that live show has a great twin guitar break in the middle. I mean, it's ferocious. What a great tune. Yeah. And that was, you know, again, one of the reasons why I named that the, the book that is because that was one of the first songs very early in the band where they were still kind of doing covers and stuff and mm-hmm. kind of figuring this is their sound out that they really clicked. Uh, you know, at least there was a couple of recollections of the guys, in the band was like, yeah, we did that, you know, off the Dave Edmonds record yeah. version of and, and, and I think, again, it was a kind of thing that it, it was bluesy, but it was rock, rock and roll, but it could be amped up and punked up. And that's obviously the version, you know, like you hear uh, them doing live. And it was kind of where Paul and, and Bob met and where the band really locked in. And so, you know, again, hence the title of the book. And so I was, we were extra excited that there was such a good version of it, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the live album, too.
lot of talk uh, among fans, whether they were a punk band or they weren't a punk band. And it kind of goes back and forth in the liner notes a little bit. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because they were just <laughs> a fantastic band. They had a lot of energy, and I can see the parallels that people would draw, you know, along with the punk scene. But they didn't dress like you know any other punk bands dress they would just come and like and there's a part in there where it said oh look paul's wearing janitor shoes you know <laughs> right and the one you know one of those first those photos that are exclusive to this uh some uh, photos taken by gene peary which are actually probably the, they are the earliest photos of them performing at the longhorn not the first show but maybe the second or third show so it's still in the summer of 1980 and there's a great big portrait that we have in there and they're just dressed so weird and funky and like they're right off the street but it's like you know you get that visual uh, the way paul describes it is you know they didn't they weren't punks but they had that punk energy. They were punks by sort of temperament and, and attitude, not so much that they were versed in, you know, UK punk rock or something, although he brought some of that to the table. So I think, again, I think the released record in terms of how the track list and what, what was chosen, what was left off ended up, you know, being a little punkier and certainly their energy at that point, I think was, you know, what we consider punk or, you know, fast, loud, fast. But I think, again, with the box, I think you see more sides and more depth to their influences and to their musicality and, and what they were able to do. And I think that's, again, reflected in the live thing. I mean, you know, it's punky, but it's not punk, you know, in the sort of, you know, orthodox kind of terms. Right. Sure. Yeah. You don't know what you can, what to call them. And it's, uh, there's a funny story in the fall of 80, when they were first starting to play the Seventh Street entry, it's the first time they played outside of Longhorn, I wanted to make a flyer because then we could put them on telephone poles and up at Orfolk and whatnot. And I, the first draft I had put together, I put something about rock and roll in there. And Westerberg said, what? We ain't no rock and roll band. I was like, that's exactly what you are. But I mean, uh, okay, yeah. if I can't call you that, I'll think of something else. So I ran a couple other things by him. And the only one that he would green light was low class rock. So their first flyer says the replacement's low-class rock. He thought that was good. You know, he didn't really want to be called punk. He didn't want to be called rock and roll, but low-class rock was okay. So maybe that's what they were. They were a low-class rock band. But, it, but it's true. I think even then, at the time, you realize that, well, they, these guys aren't strictly punk. You know, we can't sell or market them or whatever. That would be sort of disingenuous. And I guess rock and roll at the time maybe had some negative connotations, you know, classic rock of the late 70s or whatever, rock and roll at that time. So, yeah, Kind of this, you know, and I think it's we're still figuring it out in a way years later, you know. Yeah. File under power trash. There you go. <laughs> right. I love the flyer that's included in the liner notes. There's a picture of the flyer from the show. And <laughs> it's got all these bands that, you know, are crossed out. And at the bottom, it says the replacements. But there's right. one in the middle there, John Denver and the Sewer Bunnies. Love that one. <laughs> the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It's just so random. The Trini Lopez was a good one, too. But I misspelled Mormon on there, too, which I was, I was embarrassed oh, yeah. about. But they, I have to confess that was the result of uh, massive amounts of really good pot. Um, my girlfriend and I were really stoned, and we made up all those band names. She, she always said, if I have a band up there, it'd be called the Sewer Bunnies. In addition to being shown in the in the uh, booklet in the liner notes, people that order the, the some of the bundles direct from Rhino, they can actually get a replica of that poster, which is a nice little piece that we were able to do as part of this. Many of the pre-orders have all kinds of great extras on this set, like some of the others. And it's an incredible document of how it all came together and how this record was recorded. And I want to thank all of you for putting so much earnest, hard work into it, because it really is a fabulous piece of music. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Jason and Bob and Peter, thank you so much for your time today. This was fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks very much to Peter, Bob, and Jason for joining us today and shining so much light on the origins of the band and the progression of their music through that first album. This set is really a treasure trove for fans of The Replacements, and while you can listen to all this music digitally once it's released, I highly recommend getting the physical set because the essays and the photographs in the book are fascinating. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you here next time on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.